Our Father in heaven, we come here this morning not to bring you things that you need from us, but we come this morning to receive from what only you can provide for us. We come here, many of us feeling all kinds of ways, some people doing really well in life these days, others whose hearts are breaking and everything in between. And so we find comfort in confessing our need of you. We find great comfort and hope and peace in what Jesus has accomplished for us that can never be taken away. So God, we pray that you would be good and that you would be kind and faithful to us as we now look to your word. You are a covenant-keeping God and we are people who have now been called by your name. And so we pray that you would come and that you would minister to us. We pray that you would show us ourselves within your word rightly. We pray that we would see you in your word and that most of all, that you would show us your son, our savior from the scripture. And we pray that in his name, amen, amen. So God is a promise-making God. He made many big promises, has made many huge promises throughout history. People in the room familiar with the early portions of the Bible will be mindful of the promises that God made to Abraham in particular. He made massive promises, massive in terms of their scope and what would come about purely because of the gracious working of God throughout the course of human history and on into eternity. There's a lot going on in terms of what God promised through Abraham. We see some physical, temporal, conditional realities there as it pertains to Abraham's physical seed, the nation of Israel, this geopolitical reality that would come, a physical land that would be inherited named Canaan. But even more than that, we see in the promises that God made to Abraham, these spiritual, eternal, and unconditional realities of land and people and blessing forever and ever and ever. Land that would never be taken away. A people that would be as numerous as the stars. And blessing that would literally go to every family, every nation of the earth would be blessed through what God was going to do through Abraham. And so the unfolding of human history is the unfolding of redemptive history where God has been accomplishing his eternal plan to make for himself a people. So that's what's been happening in the history of the world. There's a lot of other stuff going on that's really cool, that's very interesting, that is not insignificant. And through all of that, God is accomplishing his plan that he made before the foundations of the world to make for himself a people according to his promise through the work of his son. God is building his kingdom. So when Jesus shows up on the scene about 2,000 years ago, there's not a lot of celebration and fanfare from an earthly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, though, it's right that we would understand the arrival of Jesus to be epic. Like just a quick side note on epic, like we're all made for the epic. The new heavens and the new earth is going to be epic. Life now often is a grind. 
when Jesus showed up, there was not a lot of excitement. There was not a lot of celebration, not a lot of hoopla. But from God's perspective and from the perspective of heaven, it was straight up epic. What do I mean? Think about it this way. What had been planned in eternity back there is now coming to fruition in time and space in history. Like a plan that has existed in the mind of God before the foundations of the world is now coming to this moment in time and space where God the Son has taken on flesh and has shown up on the scene to accomplish the work of redemption. It's epic. But we don't see what God sees. We're limited in our perspective, which is why we desperately need his word if we're going to understand what's really going on. We desperately need his word if we're going to understand even how is the kingdom of God built? If we're going to know how the kingdom of God is built, God's going to have to be the one to tell us. The good news is he's told us some stuff in his word. So we're going to look now to the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do open them up to Mark chapter four. We are making our way steadily through the gospel according to Mark. We will be looking today at verses one through 34 of Mark chapter four. So we're going to be looking at four different parables that Jesus tells with respect to the kingdom of God. He's going to demonstrate to us the realities of the kingdom of God, and we're going to learn quite a bit even about how the kingdom of God is established. And so now that you have had opportunity to turn to Mark chapter four and verse one, I will read the word of God for us. The words will also be up here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along there. This is the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 fold and 60 fold and a hundred fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. I have four headings for the four parables, essentially. So four headings and then a brief conclusion. That's our plan for today. The headings are not clever. I hope they serve you well. We'll go one at a time because how else would we go? Can't take them all at once, right? So here we go. Number one, we're going to give it this heading. The purpose of parables and the parable of the sower. The purpose of parables and the parable of the sower. So we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses together for just a little bit. So in verses 1 through 9 of Mark 4, Jesus is teaching to a large crowd that's assembled. He's had to get into a boat on the sea because there's so many people packing around him. There is a lot in one sense of interest in what the Lord Jesus has to say. He's been healing people. So people have taken notice of him and they want to hear him teach. And so he begins in verse three by telling them a parable. He tells them this parable that is familiar to many, the parable known as the parable of the sower, where a man goes out and sows seed and there's four different kinds of soil on which the seed falls. The seed that's the path where people walk regularly, you know, it's packed down, it's used for travel. There is rocky soil that does not have much depth Keep in mind that in this era, when seed was sown, the the land was actually tilled up after the sowing time. So you would not have known how much depth of soil there was there. And so he tells us one kind of soil is this rocky soil that does not have much depth to it. The third kind of soil is thorny soil. So where the rocky soil was shallow and therefore the plant did not end up being able to take deep root and therefore died. In the thorny soil, the thorns grow up and choke the plant and it does not flourish. And then finally, there's this fourth category, the good soil, where the seed falls, it takes root, and fruit is born, 30-fold, 60-fold, 
a hundredfold. The parable is relatively simple. Christ says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Though it is simple, it's incredibly deep and difficult for us to understand, near impossible, we should say, for us to understand on our own. The disciples, beginning in verse 10, they ask him a question about the parable. Like, hey man, you said this, what does it mean? Notice in verse 10, who's there? He's going to begin to explain things to a small subset of people. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the 12. So it's Jesus, it's the 12, and then some other people. Those around him with the 12. They ask him about the parables. Jesus, what's going on here? So in verses 11 and 12, he explains to them in one sense why he speaks in parables. Why does he teach this way? Put your eyes on verses 11 and 12. He says to those who have gathered around him, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. There are those of you to whom the secret of the kingdom of God has been given, and I'm explaining things to you. And then there are other people who are outside of the kingdom of God, and for those people, everything is in parables. Verse 12, he says, so that I teach this way, I do this, so that, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, they may indeed see, but not perceive. So they're gonna see stuff, but not really see stuff. They may indeed hear, but not understand. They're gonna hear, but they're not gonna get it. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Christ teaches the way that he does. He speaks in parables to those who are outside of the kingdom of God. In one sense, in fulfillment of what God spoke to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry was a hard ministry. So we read Isaiah 6 this morning, where God asks, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then God more or less tells him, you're going to go and preach and say things that will harden people. Your ministry will not be one of popularity. It's going to be a hardening thing for the nation of Israel. And so in one sense, Jesus is a fulfillment of that. And the way that Christ teaches in parables is a fulfillment of what even the Lord had revealed to the prophet Isaiah. But Jesus goes on in verse 13 to explain to his followers, this kind of inner circle, he goes on to explain to them what parables are and how they function. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of them? So he's holding this parable of the sower up, not as the parable of all parables, right? But he's saying that this parable is emblematic of all other parables. They are like this one. You understand the difference there? It's not that this is the greatest parable, but it's that in one sense, this one serves as a model for all other parables. They are like this one. If you don't understand this one, you won't understand the other ones. This is because the parables of Jesus all reflect and communicate the principles of the kingdom of God. This is what parables are. They're not all the same. Some of them are illustrations. Some of them are stories, right? They all, though, 
demonstrate and convey the principles of the kingdom of God, including even how it's established in the world. And in so doing, the parables of Christ are always aimed at the hearts of men. The parables of Jesus more pointedly are aimed at the hearts of men and women to crush self-confidence. They're aimed at the hearts of men and women to crush self-righteousness. They're aimed at our hearts to crush entitlement and to destroy any notion of merit. Like, I deserve this because I've done this. The parables of Jesus serve as a kind of mirror for us. They force us to ask the question, okay, where do I stand in relation to the kingdom of God? Jesus is conveying these realities of the kingdom of God. Where do I stand in relation to that kingdom? In other words, the parables of Jesus are far more than Christ's versions of something like Aesop's fables. They're not just about morality. They're not about simply ethics. They're about much more than morality. They're about much more than ethics. They show us our hearts in light of God's word and God's truth and the realities of God's kingdom. So in one sense, when we listen to the parables of Christ, we are meant to see ourselves in them. Now, the great irony always is that we tend to see ourselves in all the wrong places in God's word. And that's certainly true of the parables of Christ. We often see ourselves in the protagonist characters, so to speak, in the parables of Christ or in the kind of good stuff that he's pointing out, whereas we often don't see ourselves in the antagonistic characters or in the bad stuff that Christ is pointing out. So we should listen to them and see ourselves in them. And we are to come away thinking when he sets this grenade on the table called one of his parables and he pulls the pen and it explodes and it's like, oh my gosh, like, whoa. We are meant to come away from that thinking. He was talking about me. He was talking about me to illustrate this even from the Old Testament because there were inspired parables even there. You can turn if you want to to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Bruce is going to put those, I think, up on the screen, these verses, so you don't need to turn if you don't want to. I want to illustrate how the parables of Christ should affect us in thinking about a parable that the prophet Nathan told to the King David, King David of Israel. Many will be familiar with David's life and know that he had a woman's husband murdered so that he might have her. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. And it is in the aftermath of all of that that this parable takes place. Let's just look at this together. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, here's the parable, right? There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Like, holy smokes. That's the point, is that the parable is told, it pulls us in, right? And it's like, man, this is what's going on. This is the reality here. You hear it and you're like, that is evil. Like David said, that's wrong. And then Nathan says, bro, that's you. The parables of Christ are aimed at our hearts to crush us in terms of our own merit, our notions of our own righteousness, our notions of our own self-sufficiency. He does not tell parables to flatter us. We're going to think about the parable itself now. The parable of the sower. Jesus in verses 14 through 20 is going to explain it for his followers. He's helped them understand, here's why I speak in parables. This parable is emblematic in that other parables are like this one. Let me explain this one to you. The sower, verse 14, sows the word. So we know that the seed represents the word of God that's sown. Then in verse 15, he begins to talk about the seed that falls on the path. And he says, here's what's going on with that. This seed falls on the path. It just kind of sits on the surface because it's hard ground, can't take root. The birds of the air come and devour it. What that is representing is people who hear the word of God and it just kind of sits on the surface. It doesn't penetrate. Satan comes and snatches it away. He goes on. These middle two categories are difficult for us. We'll think about that more maybe in just a moment. The first one, it's like, okay, I think I understand that. I've seen that. Second category, he says the rocky ground. Here's what's going on with that. People hear the word and it takes some kind of root, it seems. There's some joy, at least at first, but there's no depth to it. It doesn't penetrate really. And so when things get difficult, the persecution could be of various kinds. It doesn't necessarily mean bodily harm is threatened, but it gets difficult on account of the word somehow. And because there's no depth there, that person ends up, falling away. That person ends up stumbling and not producing fruit. Big picture. They don't endure. The plant is not a healthy one. The third category is the thorny soil. He begins to unpack that for us in verse 18. Those are the ones who hear the word and there's something good happening, at least it seems, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, They grow up alongside it and choke it out. The plant does not remain. And then finally, there's this last category, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. They're the ones who hear the word, accept the word. It grows deep. Fruit is born. It's produced 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So in one sense, they might not all produce exactly the same thing, but they're all healthy, living plants that endure and are fruitful. So as we listen to this and we think about it, it's right that we would 
say, okay, like where, where do I stand in relation to the kingdom of God? Where do I stand in relation to what Christ is saying? I've heard the word and how have I responded to the word? It's appropriate that we would ask that question. We have all known people who have heard the word and who have not responded to it at all, kind of dismissed it out of hand. That's pretty easy to spot. It's like, I think I know the people that are the path. They're the road kind of people. Some of the hard situations for us, just because of our limited perspective, are those middle two categories. Because with rocky soil and thorny soil, those hearts, those people represented by that kind of soil, the plant looks healthy, at least for a time. And so we see some good stuff and it's like, hey, this is encouraging. But then in the end, those individuals do not endure. It's just like we thought about in 1 John as we made our way through that many months ago now, where there are some people who will go out from the church who will leave the people of God because they were never really of the saints. So that's an observation to just be made, that people who are rocky soil and thorny soil never were the good soil. That matters, okay? Because it's not as though people are good soil that then turn into rocky soil. It's not as though they're good soil that turn into thorny soil. They never actually were good soil. So then you might be sitting there thinking like, okay, bro, um, I'm hearing you. I'm, I'm, I think I'm understanding. The soil represents different kinds of people, different kinds of hearts. The good soil is the only good category, right? The good soil is the only one that lasts. It's the only one that endures. It's the only one that bears fruit. Like, I want to be that. And so it's like, how do I become that? How do I become good soil? And that's a tricky question. You, you don't make yourself that. So this is the great tension sometimes that we see in the scripture. Like, serious question. Can you change your own heart? Can you change your own heart? The witness of the Bible is that you can't. That the heart is deceitful and sick. Who can understand it? We're not able to turn it. How do you become good soil? The answer is one word, grace. Grace. Only by grace. We do not make ourselves good soil. We are good soil by the grace of God and therefore receive the word. So if you're sitting here this morning, I mean, this is, I hope this is a word in one sense of comfort. It's hard on the one hand because it's like, man, this is, this is deep and this is like mind of God stuff that like kind of breaks my brain. But then on the other hand, as you sit here this morning and you have heard the word and you have responded, even though you haven't understood everything, but you've responded and you said, you know what? I don't know everything, but I know that Jesus is legit. I know that Christ is who I need. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that he has provided everything that's necessary for me. I'm trusting in him. As you're sitting here this morning with that in your mind and that on your heart, regardless of how imperfect that may be, take great comfort that you did not produce that in yourself. That that faith that you have in Christ, no matter how small, is the work of God and God alone. The way that Jesus speaks here 
in this parable and even the way that he kind of navigates these waters where he speaks parables to people broadly, but then with this subset of people, he explains everything. It's perfectly consistent with the entire revelation of Scripture. So in this text, when Jesus tells this certain portion of his followers, verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Whoa, like what does that mean? The people to whom the secret of the kingdom of God have been given are none other than like Genesis, children of promise. So this is where we can read our Bibles and it can hang together. The children of promise, Abraham's spiritual children. The promised seed of Abraham. Another way we could describe people to whom the secret of the kingdom of God have been given are those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. It's the same subset of people. Before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything good or bad, not on the basis of merit, grounded in the grace of God alone, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's all of grace. So the response, at least a large portion of the response that I think we all would hope would be pulled out of us in this moment is not so much the bristling one, but it's the one of being overcome by like, why me? Why me? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in or else we would still refuse to taste and perish in our sin, right? It's the grace of God that any of us would ever see our need for Christ. It's the grace of God that any of us would ever understand ourselves rightly and look to Jesus and say, he's God, he's Messiah, he's atonement, he's righteousness, he's resurrection, he's life. Only God makes that happen. And so Christ, in one sense, is saying, like, here is how the kingdom of God comes to be. God builds the house. We're going to think more about that in just a moment, because all these parables are related. I want us to move forward. We've gotten through a good chunk of the verses. Let's anybody be alarmed. We're going to head on into heading number two. Heading number two is just probably what you have in your Bibles, a lamp under a basket, a lamp under a basket. So right here, it seems like Jesus is again speaking to the crowd broadly, not just to the kind of subset, the intimate group of his followers, because he's going to use language in verses 23 and 4. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, pay attention, listen carefully. It's very similar to what he said in verse 3, like listen to me. And then again in verse 9, he who has ears to hear. I'm just helping you see why I say that I think he's talking to a crowd again, not just to his intimate sort of subset of followers here. So in verse 21, he's speaking to the crowd and he asks a rhetorical question. Is a lamp brought into a room to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And the answer, of course, is, well, no, bro. You bring a lamp into the room to light up the room. Like, why would you light the lamp and put it under something? Exactly, okay. So the lamp comes to light everything up, to illuminate. So then Jesus continues. He said, okay, good. We're on the right track. We're tracking together here. 
He says, because nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, made clear. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. He's talking about himself and he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about himself in relation to the kingdom of God. Even So Jesus, as we've thought about before many times, he came as a veiled king. His identity was veiled. It was not obvious. He looked like other people. He did not come, at least in any obvious way, like he was not born into a family of privilege, even though he is of the line of David. He's not heir to anything. But that would not always be the case. Jesus would not always be veiled in this way in which he came. Even then, it's clear that for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, they could, they could see it, they could hear it. It's like, okay, I think I know who this man is. But Jesus, as time would continue to unfold and redemptive history would continue to unfold, Jesus would give light to the world. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, John 1, 9. Through him, the plan of God and the establishment of the kingdom of God would become clear. So think about the words of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3, he writes this. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. It would become clear. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is secret except to come to light. Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So I know that I say this regularly, and we talk about this regularly as a church. The fact that Jesus is the point of the Bible and that Jesus is the center of God's plan of redemption. The reason that we talk that way is because it's biblical. It's true. Like when Christ shows up and says things like this about himself, that when he's talking about a light that's shining, he's talking about himself, right? I have come and now the plan of God through me will become clear. Everything that has been planned from eternity past is being accomplished and will be revealed to the nations through me and the word about me. It is right to say that the entire universe is about Christ. The whole universe is about Jesus. So when we say that the Bible's about Christ and the plan of redemption centers on Christ, we're on the right track. 
because it's how he talks about himself. God decides before the world is made, I am going to redeem a people out of the fallen mass of humanity. Not because they deserve it, not because they will earn it, but because I have planned to save them and I am a redeemer. And now I'm going to make a covenant with Adam. When I make human beings, making a covenant with Adam, this is how you're to live. If you live this way, it goes well. If you violate this, you die. That covenant that I make with Adam will be violated. It will be broken. And so therefore, son, son, you are going to go. You are going to take on flesh and fulfill that covenant that Adam broke. That's what happened before the world is even made. In the mind of God, the father and the son determine that redemption will be accomplished by the son coming to save his people. And so then in time and space, after Adam breaks the covenant, humanity falls. God makes a promise. The snake crusher's coming, right? The, you know, the children's book, we read it with our kids. The one who's going to crush the head of the snake is coming. The seed of the woman is coming, and he's going to conquer the great enemy of God's people. He's going to make all things right. Many, many years pass. Promises are made. God gives his law. He reissues, in one sense, the terms of like this covenant, how you're to live. He gives that to his people. He gives them that to show them primarily that they can't do it and that one would have to come to do it for them. And then 2,000 years ago in time and space, a Jewish man shows up on the scene who is the Christ, the one who from all eternity, it had been determined, he's gonna come and do this. And redemption is accomplished. So when people ask you, when were you saved? When were you saved? People care about this stuff. There are two appropriate answers. One, if you want to go the furthest back, you can say, well, actually, in one sense, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but in one sense, that happened before the world got started. Okay, one. Second, when were you saved? Well, that actually happened on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Because at that point in history, it was done. It was done. So take great comfort that before you were even born, before you had ever conceived of making a decision for God, he made a decision for you. He had determined in eternity past that your name would be written on the palms of his son's hands. Jesus did. Like sometimes sentimental, stupid stuff is said in the church, right? And like precious moments figurines are made. But there's some stuff that is absolutely true, like to say that Jesus took names to the cross is right. He took your name to the cross is right. What he did there was no hypothetical thing. What he did there was no potential thing. Like pick a name, Ron, Steve, Tommy, Shannon, Jenny, Allison, saved, redeemed, it's finished. You're good, you're safe, redemption accomplished. 2,000 years ago. The Bible, friends, as we think about what Jesus came to do and what he accomplished and what God revealed from Genesis all the way through, the Bible just flat out does not make sense apart from Christ. 
It does not hang together apart from the Redeemer who would come. We thought about that even as we went through the book Micah together as a church. So many of the things that are said there make no sense without a Redeemer who would come. Once Jesus shows up on the scene, the Old Testament comes together and things become quite clear. It's like, oh, I get it now. I see, I see. What was hidden is now clear because Christ has come and the light is shining. Point number three, we're gonna move on. For the sake of time, I'm gonna breeze by a few verses there at the end of that one section. Point number three, the parable of the seed growing. The parable of the seed growing. Jesus, again, is going to help us understand how the kingdom of God is established. He says it's as if a man should sow seed on the ground. He goes to sleep. He gets up in the morning. The seed starts growing, and he does not fully understand even how that's happening. You see that in your text, verses 26 and 27. Verse 28, the earth produces by itself. The word there, automate, from which we get automatically, right? The earth produces the crop automatically by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest had come. So it's wild. The, the farmer sows the seed and he goes to sleep. He gets up, he goes to sleep. He gets up, he goes to sleep. The plant's growing. It's like, I don't even fully understand how that's happening. But then I can see it happen and I see that the grain is matured and it's harvest time and now I'm going to put the sickle in. It's how the kingdom of God is, right? So as we, God's people, sow seeds of the word around, or even, I mean, for me, as I sit here and sow seeds right now, you do that and then like you go to sleep tonight. You pray, sure, you plead, but you go to sleep. And you get up and you do it again tomorrow and you go to sleep and you get up and you go to sleep and you get up and you look up one day and you're like, man, there's grain all over the place. Like something's been built. I don't know how that happened fully, but it's time to harvest it. Praise God for what's going on. Two big things that we can see here from this parable of the seed growing. Number one, this kind of sub point, one takeaway the seed, a.k.a. the word of God, always, and by always, I mean always, does its work. The seed, the word of God, always does its work. The seed of God sown, the spirit of God causing growth. Think again of the words of Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's always true. Second takeaway from the parable of the seed growing is that only God can make things grow. Only God makes things grow. So in one sense, it's liberating for us because we realize that it doesn't rise and fall with our ability. Only God can build the kingdom of God. Really, all we are able to do is to participate in some small way 
But to think for one moment that we are effectively causing anything to happen that is of eternal significance is crazy. Salvation is of the Lord. Unless he builds the house, then the labor is in vain. Number four, the parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed. Put your eyes on verse 30. Jesus, again, what what can we compare the kingdom of God? I'm continuing to teach you about how the kingdom is made, it's built, it's established. What parable shall we use for it? Verse 31, he tells us, it's like a mustard seed, a grain of a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. So when this is being sown and when this work is being done, it's very unimpressive. It's quite small, not a lot of flash, no reason for people to take notice. Yet, when it is sown, verse 32, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So though it is so small and unimpressive, and you think about even when Christ died and rose, like that early assembly of people, it's like 120 people. Like we were told this in Scripture. 120 people after three years by church growth standards is not great, right? In terms of Christ coming and doing ministry on earth. It's very unimpressive when it begins. Even when thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ in the early weeks and months and all and years of the church, it still is so small compared to the Roman Empire within which it's situated. But yet when the kingdom of God continues to grow over time, God continues to cause the growth over time. When it matures, it becomes the largest tree in the garden. Right? It looks so tiny. It looks so unimpressive. But it will flourish and grow into a tree where all the birds of the air will come and nest in it. The kingdom of God, hidden and veiled at the time of Christ, upon the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the gospel would go out to the nations There will be a culmination of all of this one day, but even now we can see the nations coming to nest in this tree called the kingdom of God. We see people from all tribes, languages, cultures, socioeconomic status, ethnicities, whatever. We see all kinds of people coming to take nest in the shade of this tree called the kingdom of God. There will be a multitude that no one can count at the end of history. Humble beginnings, small, but it will be fantastic at the end of the day. Verse 33, put your eyes there again, just the words of Christ or the words about Christ from Mark, the gospel writer. He tells us with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, them again being the crowds. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So friends, in all of this, we see, primarily, we see God keeping his covenant to save a people through his promised Christ. I'm going to say that again. Like when we read these parables in Mark 4, main thing, like main point, we see God keeping his covenant to save a people through his promised Christ. 
Galatians chapter 3. Just listen to the word of God. He's keeping his promise that he had made even to Abraham. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the, the heirs according to promise. The children of Abraham come to faith in the Lord Jesus through the preaching of the word of Christ. That's what the parable of the sower is about. God is building his kingdom. He is saving his people. By grace and not by merit, by faith and not by works, all on the basis of what Christ and Christ alone has accomplished. It's the point of Mark chapter four. And all God's people say, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again at the end of the sermon, acknowledging that we still need you desperately. We pray that you would take your word and drive it deep into our hearts and minds. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would continue by your spirit to work in us and change us and conform us into the image of Christ. We all come this morning desiring to be those who bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And we pray that you would make that happen even amongst this number here at CBC. We thank you for your plan of redemption that you put together before you even made the world. And we praise you for sending your son in time and space to redeem a people like us. And so we pray that as we reflect even more on what he has done for us in coming to the Lord's table, that you would continue to minister to us by your spirit, that you would sustain and strengthen our faith, that you would Come alongside and comfort and stir us on to love and good works. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.